Okay, let's go ahead and look at our scripture that can be found in the bulletin in the back. Uh, we continue our study on the kingdom of God, and we're going to be rounding out our study on the kingdom of God by looking at the Beatitudes from the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to look at the first three Beatitudes today, and this is Matthew 5, 1 through 5. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on a mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The word of the Lord. Well, I can't talk about the kingdom of God without talking about the Beatitudes because they specifically reference to who belongs the kingdom of God. But the Beatitudes from the Sermon of the Mount are a bit of a strange thing, if you will, for the Christian community, for the world. We're not exactly what to assure of what we are supposed to do with the Beatitudes. I mean, nobody is saying hey, let's take the Ten Commandments off the courthouse wall and let's put up the Beatitudes instead, right? See, the Sermon on the Mount, which is from the Old Testament, when you think about it, there's some similarities between the two, aren't there? Moses goes up on a mountain, he comes down, he gives the Ten Commandments. Jesus also goes up on a mountain. And then he teaches and he teaches these Beatitudes, are we supposed to see them in the same way? And the answer is no. Because the Ten Commandments are very prescriptive in their nature, aren't they? You, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not follow them. You shall not have an idol. You shall, and so on. But the Sermon on the Mount is not prescriptive, the Beatitudes. They're more descriptive. They're descriptive of a new life the life in the kingdom. See, if you'll remember, Jesus' central message when he came to earth was that the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the good news, for the kingdom is at hand. And Jesus, indeed, Jesus went throughout Galilee, uh, preaching and teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And this kingdom that Jesus is ushering in is a new type of kingdom. It has no army. It has no boundaries. It transcends space and time. It takes up residence, not geographically, but rather in the hearts of men and women. This kingdom does not reform men from the outside in, but it transforms them from the inside out. And as Jesus has inaugurated this kingdom to this day, the kingdom has been advancing and growing as the gospel is preached and lives are transformed. And so the Beatitudes are not a prescriptive on how to enter the kingdom. They're rather descriptive of how one lives in light of the kingdom that has entered into us, his people. It's a description of those who live out the kingdom in this fallen world. And so the Beatitudes are descriptions of the characteristics, of the character of those who are in the kingdom. It's almost like a diamond that has these eight different beatitudes, these facets of a diamond that show who we are and who we are becoming as this kingdom life takes shape inside of us, whoever 
follows Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at the first three Beatitudes because they're foundational to the rest of the Beatitudes. They speak about the fundamental relationship between us and God. Because the kingdom of God did not come to reform us, it came to transform us. And when we see God in his proper place, we will see ourselves and others are rightly as well. well. Let's begin with the beatitude number one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. This word blessed in the Greek, makarios, actually could be translated happy. This seems kind of strange, right? Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I don't know anyone who would necessarily relate happiness and poverty of spirit. Well, why are they happy? Remember, it's a blessing that does not come from ourselves, but it's a blessing that comes from God. In other words, he's describing for those who are poor in spirit, there is a blessedness, there is a happiness, even in the poverty of spirit. For the blessing that comes from God is the kingdom of heaven. Now, it doesn't say blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It says blessed are the poor in spirit. So think of those two words. When we think of poor, we think of poverty. And when we think of spirit, we think of spiritual. We think of God, the life of God, His Holy Spirit that brings life. And so he's speaking about a spiritual poverty that exists in people. Blessed are those who understand that they are spiritually poor in relation to God, who is rich in spirit, who is the giver of spirit. In other words, they look at God and they look at themselves and they see that there is a poverty of spirit which leads to a humility. I love that word humility. It actually comes from the word humus, which means of the earth. We recognize that God is from heaven and we are of the earth. That because of sin, we are not like him. Now this beatitude shouldn't surprise anyone because we see God reflecting this attitude throughout the Old Testament, right? Isaiah 57, 15, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly heart to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. In other words, God rests and comes near to those who are lowly in spirit and contrite in heart. Isaiah 66 puts it this way, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made and so they have come to be. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Why is this person contrite and trembling? Because they look at God's word. They look at God's word and in doing so measure themselves against the character and demands of God and they realize that they don't match up. See, there's a measuring stick that God has given us. In fact, I brought my trusty yardstick right here in which I built my house piece by piece. No, I did not. That's an outright lie. 
But we measure ourselves against something all the time, don't we? You maybe did it when you walked in here, looking around and looking at other people, asking the question, do I measure up? But to be poor in spirit is to recognize that ultimately there's only one measurement by which we must measure. This is a yardstick. It's the standard unit of measurement, 36 inches. If you remember, we are made in the image of God. And Jesus Christ is the image of God. In other words, he is the archetype. He is the 36 inches. He is the yardstick by which we measure ourselves. If you want to know who you were designed to be, what you were designed to look like, how you were supposed to act, we look to our yardstick, Jesus Christ. But the reality is when we do so, it should lead to a poverty of spirit because he was perfect in every single way, was he not? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus Christ did that. And we do not. And we recognize that there's such an infinite gap between ourselves and God that it leads to poverty of spirit. But the reality is all too often we settle with different measuring sticks, do we not? Perhaps as a, a woman, I thank God I'm not a woman in the sense of the amount of pressure in the world to look a certain way you walk through the magazine counters and there it is, the archetype, the measuring stick of how you're supposed to look, how you're supposed to appear, how you're supposed to act. And we're having a good day when we look in the mirror and so we feel pretty good of ourselves. And then we walk by someone that's more beautiful or glamorous than us and we fall short of the measuring stick. But the reality is that is not the measuring stick that we are to be measured against. Those who see themselves correctly will always have a poverty of spirit. Remember Isaiah 6.1 where Isaiah has this image in the year that King Uzziah died. He has this image. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of the robe filled his temple and above him were the seraphim and each had six wings. And they called out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And what was Isaiah's response? Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, this is what the Beatitudes of the kingdom are. It's for those who have encountered God and recognize that they fall far short. The problem with the world, the problem often with us Christians, is we've lost our bearing because we've lost our standard. As a result, we are not poor in spirit. As the proverb says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. I don't know if you remember the name Rod Blagovich. Blago, as they call him. Former governor of uh, Illinois, the fourth governor, I might add, to do prison time. What's up with Illinois? He, he uh, is serving a 14-year prison sentence. The, name, the reason his name's come up is there was some talk of possibly Trump uh, commuting his sentence. 
Uh, we're not sure if that's going to happen or not. But uh, uh, Blagovich was uh, indicted and convicted of 18 charges of corruption, one of them being uh, trying to sell uh, President Obama, Obama's seat when he vacated the Senate seat in Illinois to the highest bidder. And as Blago, who was, I think, on The Apprentice, uh, was making his rounds before he was convicted. He was on David Letterman, and he said these uh, words. Uh, David, I'd like your listeners to know, and everybody in Illinois and anyone else who's listening, that I will be vindicated. I did nothing wrong, and I'll have an opportunity to be able to go into a court and prove that I did nothing wrong. He was convicted of all of his charges and continues to serve his sentence. Now, here was a man who had everything. Educated, beautiful wife and children, governor of Illinois. But it wasn't enough. He started using a different measuring stick. And when you use any other measuring stick than God, it ultimately leads to destruction. So what is your standard? How do you size yourself up? Is it the reputation that you have in the community, the standing that you have? Or the accomplishments that you have done in your life? Perhaps you're esteemed in your job, in your business, in your neighborhood. There's only one stick in the end. And when we compare ourselves to Him, for God has given us His Word, written and His Word incarnate, we recognize that we're poor in spirit. The other thing that God says for us to do is to be still and know that I am God. That's why it's so important during the week to take time, to slow down, to take the little ear pods out of your ears and to be still. Because it's only when we reflect upon the reality of knowing that He is God that we are poor in spirit. And it's then when we recognize and receive the blessing from God that the kingdom belongs to such as these. Isn't that interesting? That the kingdom of God belongs to those who are absolutely not worthy of it. The only way you get into the kingdom of God is on your knees. But it belongs to the lowly, the contrite, to those who don't make the cut, to those who look up to God and say, go away from me for I am a sinful man and I live in the midst of a sinful people. Is that you? Well, I tell you, you are not far from the kingdom of heaven. Let's move on to point number two, beatitude number two. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now again, this is a strange one, right? Happy are the unhappy. Happy are those who mourn. I mean, when you think about it, in one sense, Christians should be the happiest people in the world, no? We know that God has forgiven us through Christ. We have an inheritance, the kingdom of God that is waiting for us. And yet, blessed are those who mourn. How can we be blessed if we mourn? This beatitude is actually tied very closely with the first one. Because the first one is all about confession, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. 
But the second one is all about contrition. See, it's one thing to acknowledge your sins. It's another thing to mourn for them, is it not? I know I mess up. I know I do bad things. But so does everybody else, right? We'll just keep on pushing. It's for those that recognize their sin and they're troubled by it. The second beatitude, if you will, is the emotional counterpart of the first beatitude. See, the proud do not mourn. Isaiah 36.1 puts it this way. An oracle is within my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For in his own eyes he flatters himself too much to detect or hate his sin. It goes right over him. He doesn't sense it. Not those who are blessed who mourn, for they will be comforted. I think that's the reason I chose to have the praying the scripture of the Pharisee and the tax collector, right? Both of them come into the temple to pray before God and to offer alms of thanksgiving. And the Pharisee stood up and he prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like these other men, robbers and evildoers and adulterers. Heck, even this tax collector who's right over here. He was using a very different measuring stick than the Son of God. He put himself up against the tax collector and he said, I look pretty good. And so God, I'm actually going to thank you for how good I am. It's not really mourning, is it? But the tax collector stood at a distance and he would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's mourning. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The tax collector knew. He held up the proper measuring stick, and he couldn't even raise his head to heaven. I mean, when you think about it, the kingdom of God turns the kingdom of man on its head. The Pharisee comes with his accomplishments, and the tax collector comes with his sins. What a contrast between the two. But to live as part of the kingdom of God is to live in antithesis to the world. See, what does the world say about your and my shortcomings? It says minimize them, right? They're not that bad. Think of all the good things that you've done, right? Everybody does those things. You're okay. You fit in. And if you can't minimize them, it says to rationalize them. This was your parents' fault. This was society's fault. This was that person in your life's fault. Go ahead and take all the blame of your sin and put them on, put it on them. Now, I'm not saying there's not responsibility. Hear me on that. But the reality is I carry plenty of my own sin. There's enough to go around everywhere. If we can't minimize them or rationalize them, we must delegate them. But the Bible says something different. It says to mourn them. There is such a thing as Christian tears. Do we mourn our sin 
And do we also mourn the sin around us? Remember when Jesus went to the tomb of Lazarus with Mary? And Mary said to him, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. He had a great answer for Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. But there was no answer for Mary. Simply said as he looked at the tomb that Jesus wept. Now why was Jesus weeping? He knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the grave. He even said he was going to do it. He was weeping for the sin of the world. He was weeping for all the other people that he wasn't going to raise at that time. He was weeping for darkness and death that are the result of the human race that is in rebellion against God. Do you mourn for the sin of the world? Or is it just them? It's us and them. Not for Isaiah, was it? I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. The beauty of each of these beatitudes is if they all come with a blessing. For blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's why Jesus came. Right? The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me. For the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. The Lord comes to bring comfort now and then for those who mourn for sin. A couple of weeks ago, I went to a funeral. My mother's, one of my mother's brothers died. She is a, a, has two brothers and three sisters. And he was the first one to die. So everyone's age 70 and above. The family, these brothers and sisters have been together. And he was the first one to pass away. And I got to firsthand experience the mourning of my mother and my aunts and uncles as they said goodbye to their brother. Why were they mourning? Well, because of the loss of a dear brother, of a friend, of someone who's been there for them their whole life. And as I thought of this sermon, I thought about the question, do we mourn for our sin like we mourn for a lost one? Do we mourn in the same way with that depth of emotion for paradise that has been lost? Have you ever wept for the world? Or maybe even a bigger question, do you ever weep for your own sin? Do you ever look at God and His ways and His laws and look at yourself and mourn at how screwed up you are? Blessed are those who mourn. What we need more than anything is to see ourselves rightly and for God to break our hearts for what breaks His. So how do we do that? How do we start? I think number one, we recognize we're poor in spirit. And the way we do that is we start our day at the cross. Nobody is proud before the cross. When you take the cross out of Christianity, what do you have? You got nothing. And so we must go to the foot of the cross. And we must look up at the crucified body of Jesus Christ. 
Because the reason that he went to that cross is for you and me. My sin is so great that it took the death of the righteous Son of God to expunge it. Go to the cross day by day, moment by moment. That, by the way, is you know, one of the things that we send out uh, at 5 a.m., and you can sign up for it, is that daily uh, uh, link, that daily text message. And one, and one of it is called the Daily Liturgy. I do this just about every day, around 2, 3 o'clock. I click on that Daily Liturgy because it has a confession in it. No one is proud before the cross. We must go, uh, recognize that we're poor in spirit. We must go to cross and we must make a regular habit of confession. Confession is part of the daily life of a Christian. If we don't confess before the Lord, what we will discover is that our hearts will grow invariably hard as we sort of protect ourselves. And so ask the Lord, one of the greatest things you can do to the Lord is ask the Lord, show me, Lord, show me my sin. Don't minimize, don't posture. And ask also, Jesus, would you begin to break my heart for the things that break your heart? We may not want to acknowledge that. It might destroy my heart. But remember the beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This brings me to my final point. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The first two Beatitudes deal with our relationship to God. And this one does as well, but it naturally begins to flow into our relationship with other people. Another crazy Beatitude, right? Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. It's total counterintuitive to what the world says, right? The meek don't inherit the earth. The strong inherit the earth, the powerful, the conqueror, the overcomer. To him belongs the earth. But the kingdom of God does not work like the kingdom of man. In fact, if you want to live like the kingdom of God, just think about what the kingdom of man says and probably just do the exact opposite. I think you'll be okay. What exactly is meekness? We need to understand that word. The dictionary gives two commonly accepted definitions of meekness. Deficient in spirit and courage and, number two, not strong. But that's entirely wrong as relates to the spiritual understanding of meekness. Meekness is not weakness. Jesus Christ was meek, was he not? Did he not have command of 12 legions of angels? Was he not the conqueror of death? No, meekness is not weakness. And meekness is not niceness either. Niceness is a personality trait, one that I did not inherit. You can be quiet and not be meek in your spirit. No, meekness, the word meekness means one who has abdicated his rights before God and man. Before God, he sees himself aright. He recognizes that he has no standing before God. And so he is poor in spirit in his action of how he lives out his life, recognizing that his life is captive and obedient to God. But it also flows into the fact that one who is meek recognizes that he doesn't have any standing before man, that he's not better than them, that there is no inherent right to be treated better. The meek man or woman comes to see that he has no rights 
Because he cannot justify himself. He is not the center of the universe. He recognizes that God is the measuring stick. And so he ceases measuring himself against the qualifications or accomplishments of other people. And the result of that with people is when somebody does you wrong, when somebody puts you down, when somebody cheats you, there is a peace because you have abdicated your rights before man. And in your life situation, whatever God gives you, prosperity or poverty, there is a peace because you know that God is in charge and you have no rights, that everything is a gift. Now, as I said, meekness is an example of the kingdom of God. It's not natural for men. Do you know who the two meekest men were in the Bible? They were also the two greatest, Moses and Jesus. It was said of Moses in Numbers 12.3. Now, Moses was the meekest man, the meekest man in the entire world. And Jesus used very few words to describe himself, but one of them was meek. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am humble or meek and lowly in heart. The word meek, by the way, in Latin, where does it come from? The word meek actually means accustomed to the hand. It's a term that's used in the taming of animals, where an animal has been broken, if you will, and is pliable before the hand of a master. See, when you're breaking a horse, the goal of breaking the horse is not to break his spirit, but rather to bring his spirit or her spirit under control. And so meekness means power under control. I actually read an interview with a horse trainer in Texas that talks about the qualities of a meek horse. And the first is power under control. He said, once broken, a good horse doesn't require much correction. He has learned to accept the reins of his master. And a gentle tug is all that is needed to urge him in the direction intended. The training process does not remove the strength and power. Rather, it places the energy under control to channel their spirit. And a horse properly channeled is able to jump higher, run faster, and work harder than an uncontrolled animal. A second quality of meekness says this trainer, is learning the master's mind. A special relationship develops between the horse and his master. And after years of working together, there is a kinship. In fact, it's not long before the horse acts according to what he knows his master would do, even if the master does not give explicit instructions. Third, partnership. A rider may leave his horse temporarily but the horse knows its job and is capable of working even when it does not feel the immediate presence of its master. And then finally, loyalty. A meek horse has an elevated sense of loyalty and commitment. In the days of the Wild West and the Pony Express, the lives of the mail carriers depended upon the horses they rode. They needed to be swift and hardy. These horses were so loyal that they would die in running if that is what it took and they never whined in protest. Now he finishes with this thought. 
Perseverance is very important to the meek horse. A horse does not become this way overnight. It's a process, a long, hard period of training. Horses must be taken in, trained, and made accustomed to the instruments used to harness their potential. It takes patience, sweat, and a view toward the promising future. But with these vital ingredients, the effort pays rich dividends. Christian, this is exactly what the Lord is doing with you. If you are a follower of Christ, as the kingdom of God has entered into your world and is taking more and more ground, as you become poor in spirit, as you mourn for your sin, and as you learn to become accustomed to the hand. So have you learned meekness before the Lord? What does the Lord have to do to get you moving in a direction that he wants? Is it a simple word? A simple tug of the reins? Or does he have to tug and pull? Are you docile in his hands? Or are you wild and unruly? Have you become accustomed to his hand? You'll know. Because you'll know a little bit about how you are with people. How do you respond when people infringe on your rights? Question your motives. Put, yourself, put you down. Do you instantly rear up and you're ready to defend yourself? Or are you content with God to be, with God to be your defense? Slow to speak, quick to forgive, easy to love. It starts with you learning to become accustomed to the hand. It starts with you bowing your head to the master, acknowledging that you are poor in spirit, acknowledging that there is no God and that you are not him. Perhaps as I preach this sermon, you are recognizing the poverty of your spirit and you are mourning your sin. And I tell you, you are not far from the kingdom of God. For that's exactly what God is doing. We must bow our head to our master. Second, we must obey the commands of the Lord. Are the commands of the Lord that he gives us in scripture, are they prescriptions or are they suggestions? Do we contemplate them and examine how we feel about doing them? Or with a simple tug, do we respond in obedience as the Holy Spirit pricks our hearts? The reality, my friends, is we must depend on Christ. This is not humanly possible. It is against our fallen fleshly nature. The Holy Spirit is within us, but the old resides as well. But Christ, who was totally committed to the command of his Father, so as to get up on a cross and die at his command, is in you and in me. And he who said, I always do what is pleasing to the Father, will work inside of our spirit as we trust and depend on him and move out in obedience. See, we have a master who is with us, moment by moment, giving us strength to obey 
as we look not upon the wind and the waves, but upon the Savior who calls us out upon the sea. See, we don't want to please God, but Christ does. And He's in you, and you're in Him. We don't want to. We won't, but He will. For the kingdom of God did not come to reform us. It came to transform us. Perhaps now has come the time for you to bow your knee to your King, Jesus Christ, for the first time. And to say, I am a sinful man. Go away from me. And Jesus will say to you, I came to seek and save the lost. For blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of God. My friends, our comfort is this. That Jesus, who began a good work in you, will continue on in it and bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Rest in his hand. Mourn for your sin, for you will be comforted. Be meek, for ultimately you and I will inherit the earth. Let's pray. Oh God, so often I use a measuring stick to prop myself up, to show myself great and big so I don't have to acknowledge the fact that I am a sinner saved by grace and I need your grace moment by moment for without it I would be lost Jesus let us through your Holy Spirit begin to conform more and more under your hand as we resemble people who are low in spirit who mourn for sin and who are meek in heart we pray all of these things in Christ's name